Good morning. Welcome once again. We're still glad you're here with us. We are in a sermon series on First and Second Samuel that's going to take us roughly through the end of the school year. And today we're starting what could be kind of a mini-series. Uh, you could call it something like Stories from the Chase, which I didn't actually in the sermon, but you could. And basically the next couple weeks you'll see uh, David and Saul kind of chasing each other all over Israel. Saul's pursuing David, and David's running away, and then David's running to Saul to do something, and then he's running away again, and kind of this back and forth. So kind of this mini-series, they're going to get a lot of exercise over the next couple weeks. But not this week. Well, kind of. So this week's sermon is, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And this is from 1 Samuel 18. And uh, the actual slaying actually happened last week in the last chapter. But if, as you're reading through 1 Samuel, this idea that people are seemingly kind of being slaughtered left and right at God's command, if that's uncomfortable for you, that's good. People dying should be uncomfortable. And I'm not going to actually go into that this week, but that we several times over the sermon series have spent five or ten minutes just diving into that, talking about uh, what that means theologically, how we deal with that, and the fact that uh, people are dying. And it almost seems in some cases like genocide happening at God's command, which it isn't exactly, but it can seem that way. But if you're struggling with that or have issues with that, I encourage you to go back and listen to the last couple sermons, or you can come find me or Chris or Spencer um, or the other elders, and we can point you to the specific sermons to listen to, to deal with that, or talk to you about that. Uh, but just know if you're feeling that tension, uh, that's a healthy tension to feel. So, introduction. Quickly to me, my name's Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and one of the privileges of eldership is getting to preach sometimes, as I'm doing now. So, thank you for that opportunity. It's a lot of fun. I always enjoy preaching. And then, a short intro to kind of what we're doing with First and Second Samuel. The way we're going through the passages we preach is we're kind of splitting it into two pieces and we're looking at the human side of the passage and the divine side of the passage. So the human side is a little bit more, uh, how does this relate to us? Where do we see ourselves in some ways in different parts of the passage? Which, depending on if you grew up in the church and what your experience was, that may have been uh, all that preaching was or teaching was. And that is one important piece. But if it stops there, that's not good because ultimately all scripture is about Jesus, not about us. And so we look at the human side first and then we look at the divine side. And that's intentional because we want to finish with Jesus, not with ourselves. And so the divine side is to look at where do we see Christ in this passage, either uh, a type of Christ, meaning Jesus is like this person in the passage, but better, or a contrast, saying Jesus is unlike this person in these ways, and that's a good thing. So that's how we're doing First and Second Samuel as we go through it. And then finally, for introduction and review, David and Goliath. If you were here last week, that was last week's passage. If you weren't here, it was still last week's passage. But it was the story of David and Goliath, and of all the Old Testament stories, that's probably one uh, that most people have heard at least some piece of. So I'm not going to summarize the whole chapter, but basically, Goliath is a Philistine. They're enemies of Israel, and Goliath is big. He's about 10 feet tall, so much larger even than us today, and certainly than 
the average man who was in the Israel army at that time. And Goliath comes and is taunting Israel and saying, where's your God? Send someone out to fight me, and if they kill me, you win, and if I kill them, we win. And so finally, David comes through a series of events, ends up at the battlefield. He wasn't in the army. Here's this taunt and gets fired up. He's like, he can't talk that way about our God. And so David goes and kills Goliath uh, in a pretty unique way, if you haven't heard the story. But then after Goliath dies, he falls down dead. And then David goes up to Goliath, takes Goliath's own sword, cuts off Goliath's head. And then when the Philistines see that, they panic and they flee. When Israel sees it, they're encouraged and they chase the Philistines and kill a bunch of them on the road as the Philistines are fleeing to this specific location uh, to Gath and Ekron, if you're interested. And some of them make it and escape and some of them are killed on the road. And then after that, David takes Goliath's head and Israel returns from the battlefield to Jerusalem and David brings Goliath's head back to Jerusalem with him. So that's where we are going to pick up. David and Goliath has happened. Goliath is dead. Israel has routed the Philistine army, and now they're returning home. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And David is tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain, refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah love David because he led them in their campaigns. Let's pray and then we will look at the human side of this passage. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the salvation you brought us through your death and resurrection. I pray uh, that the preaching this morning would bring you glory and that people would leave, encourage Jesus with uh, the picture this passage gives us of who you are, what you've done for us, how that's accomplished, and what benefits we've gained from that. Amen. All right. A couple different ways that we are like David. Like David, who was given the kingdom of Israel, which happened a few chapters ago that Samuel, the prophet the book is named after, came and anointed David as king, saying, Saul is king right now, but actually God has now chosen you to be king and Saul will eventually be dethroned and you will be king. So David's given this kingdom unexpectedly. In verse uh, 8, it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Saul's angry not just because he's not getting recognition for what he's done. He's angry 
Because at this point, David hasn't actually killed tens of thousands. He's killed one, and maybe some of the others on the road. But he's killed Goliath. He hasn't been to war before. He hasn't been in a campaign before. Saul has. Saul has probably killed his thousands. And he's saying, they're crediting David with tens of thousands, and he's only killed one. If they're doing that already, what more is them left for him to take? He's taken my praise and my glory. What more is left for him to take but the kingdom? In Luke 12, Jesus, when preaching to his disciples, says to them at one point in the chapter, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. If you're here in this room this morning and you're a believer, you have received from God not just salvation, not just Christ, but you've received a kingdom, God's kingdom. In being brought into God's family, you now share in the benefits that exist in that kingdom. And like David, who didn't do anything to get the kingdom of Israel, Samuel came to him and anointed him, and David hadn't done anything to earn the kingdom or deserve the kingdom. It was just given freely at God's choice. In the same way, God has freely given us access to the kingdom. He's given us access to the resources of his kingdom without us earning it, without us doing anything to deserve it. Little flock here you could also read as little children. Think of it like a family. A child has access to their parents' house, to all the resources of that. When I go to my parents' house and I visit them and I walk in, usually the first thing I do after saying hi is I go to the refrigerator and I open it and I get something to drink, a glass of milk or water or juice or pop or whatever. But when I do that, I don't ask my parents' permission before I do that. I just go in and I go to the fridge and I take it. Why? Because I'm their son. Because I know that I have access to those resources. I have access to what's in their fridge. And I don't have to ask them because they love me. I'm part of their family. They're not going to say to me, oh, I'm sorry, that milk is not for you. I'm sorry, that water is not for you. No. They delight to share that with me. Those of you who are parents, you know that. You delight to share with your children what you have. God's the same way. He delights to share with you what he has. And if you're not here this morning and you're not a believer, have that picture of who God is. We'll get more pictures of who God in Christ is. But God is not someone who's waiting to strike you down or to catch you in sin and say, ah, 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 ah. No, God's saying, come to me. I've got all this stuff to share with you that you're missing out on. Come to me. Come to Christ. Accept and embrace the salvation that he bought you without you doing anything to earn it. Come enjoy all the benefits of that that I want to give you. So that's one way. Another way that we are like David, we also have enemies, but the Lord is with us. Now coming in this morning, you may have an idea in your head of who your enemies are, maybe personally in your life or in the United States or in the world. You might have some idea, this is my enemy or these are my enemies. And my question to that is, does your idea of who your enemies are line up with what God says and Scripture says about who our enemies are? As believers, we have three main enemies, and those enemies are, in no particular order, sin, Satan, and death. Those are the enemies. In Ephesians, Paul writes, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies aren't of this world. It's not other people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. Our enemies are not other people, ultimately. 
not your co-workers, not your neighbors. Ultimately, our enemies are sin, Satan, and death. And we're going to look for a moment right here at sin as an enemy, and then later when we look at the divine side, we're going to look at uh, Satan as an enemy, contrasting Satan and Christ, and briefly touch on death as well. But we're going to look for a minute at sin as our enemy. So these three verses are all written by Paul in different parts of the Bible. And Paul writes, as a believer, in Romans 7, he writes, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. He's saying, I'm a Christian, I believe, I've accepted Christ, and yet there's good I want to do. I want to do good. I want to do righteous and holy acts. And there's evil I don't want to do. The sin that I used to do before I believed, I don't want to do that, but I keep on doing it. And the good I want to do, I can't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And then if you read on in that passage, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. But the same Paul who writes this in Romans 7 also writes in various places in 1 Corinthians, writing to the Corinthian church, he says, therefore I urge you to imitate me. And then a few chapters later, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now Paul here is not urging them to imitate me, to imitate him in doing the evil he doesn't want to do and not doing the good he wants to do. If you read the passages, 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, uh, right before 11.1, 1, he's talking about his life as a believer, and he's saying, imitate this. Imitate my way of life. But notice in 11, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So he's not saying, just do this. Just be better. Just do good things. He's saying, no, look to me in my life, and imitate that, but imitate that in Christ. Follow the example of Christ. Now, this question is a big thing that Christians wrestle with at various times. It's like, all right, I'm a believer, and Christ died for sin. And Paul writes in a different part of the New Testament that my sinful nature actually died when Christ died. It was nailed to the cross and it died. So if that's so, how can I keep struggling with sin? How can there be both times of victory and times of defeat. How can it be that the good I want to do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing? But there is still victory at times. We should expect that both of these would be true. So think back to the story of David and Goliath. David killed Goliath and cut off his head. And if you were here last week, Chris preached that passage, and he said during that that this was a picture of Christ cutting off the head of our sin which is true. Jesus Christ has cut the head off of your sin. But what happens right after that? They pursue the rest of the Philistines and they kill a lot of them on the road, but not all of them. Some escape. This is a picture of what dealing with sin is like for believers right now. Christ has cut the head off of our sin. It has been defeated, but it has not yet been completely destroyed. There are little remnants of it left. So Jesus has shown us, sin is no longer your master. I'm in charge now. Believe, because it is true, that the head has been cut off, that victory is possible in various ways. But also understand that sin is fleeing, and there are pieces of sin that still exist. It says later, near the end of the New Testament, that a time will come at the end, where sin, death, and Satan will not just be defeated, which has already happened, but they'll actually be totally destroyed and completely destroyed and no longer exist. 
So sin has been defeated. It has not yet been completely destroyed. And that's where the tension comes for us as believers, that yes, there's times of victory, and there's also times of defeat. There's times of Romans 7 of saying, how can this be? I want to do good and I just can't. And it just keeps not happening. Why do I keep doing the evil I don't want to do? Because sin has been defeated, but not yet totally destroyed. But also there are times of 1 Corinthians where there is victory and there is that example that can be followed. And that is only because Christ has cut the head off our sin and it's in him that that happens. So it's easy in passages like this to look at the hero in the story, David in this case, and think of ways that were like that person, right? Think of watching a movie. You watch a movie, usually you want to identify with the hero, not with the villain. You want to be the one that saves the day. You want to be the one that helps other people. You want to be the one that gets the fame and the praise at the end, not the one who ends up locked in a cell when their plan fails. But we're not just like David in this passage. We're also like Saul. How are we like Saul? Like Saul, we are angry, fearful, and jealous that Christ's fame and effort exceeds our own, and we seek to destroy Christ. Two verses from the New Testament, from Acts. Peter here is speaking to someone And he says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And in Matthew, Jesus speaking about the end, he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now without context, you might read this and think, wow, they must have been doing some really evil stuff. The way Jesus speaks to them, the way Peter speaks to Simon is the name of the man Peter's talking to in Acts. But if you read those passages, what Simon asked that caused this response in Peter is Simon actually, he was a sorcerer who became a believer and was shocked when he saw the power of Christ compared to the power he used to have as a sorcerer. And then some of the apostles eventually come to where he is and they lay hands on people and the Holy Spirit comes and Simon says, whoa, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen power like that. And he says to Peter, hey, I'll give you money if you give me this power so that anyone I lay hands on will also receive the Holy Spirit. And when you read that, you might think, okay, like, that's not really how that works. You can't buy it. It's a little misguided. But that seems like a pretty good thing. Like, he wants to go around laying hands on people and giving them the Holy Spirit. But Peter's response is, I see you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Why? Because Simon doesn't want that power so that God can be glorified. Simon wants that power so Simon can be glorified. Without even knowing it, he's bitter about the fact that God's fame is eclipsing his own. In Matthew, when Jesus says to these people, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers, what's the evil they were doing? They were performing miracles in Christ's name teaching and preaching in Christ's name, and healing in Christ's name. They were doing some of the same things that we do every Sunday. But Jesus' response is not, oh no, you weren't doing that. He's like, yeah, you were doing that, but I don't know you. You thought doing those things gave you favor with God, 
You thought by doing the right things, by saying the right things, that I would accept you, that I'd think, wow, Jesse's really great. He's preaching the gospel at Hiawatha on Sunday. God's like, I don't, that's not what it's about. I never knew you. If you're here this morning and you've never heard this, hear this clearly. All that Jesus wants from you is to know you. Not for you to do all the right things, act in a certain way, memorize certain Bible verses. Scripture's great. Memorizing it's great. But memorizing the words of this book won't save you. Believing that Jesus did all the work for you and died for your sins. Believing that he knows you, that you can become part of his family. That's what saves you. So how do we seek to destroy Christ? Because when I say that, you might think, oh, Jesse, we don't try and destroy Christ. I don't mean try and physically destroy him, but we try and tear down his work. We try and make it a him plus us. We try and say, oh yeah, God did this really great thing. This is awesome. Now, can you give me some of that so I can go do it and people can give me a little praise instead of you? Or, yeah, God, you did this great stuff, and I'm going to tell people all about it so that you think I'm pretty great or I'm pretty special. And Christ says in response to that, no, no, that's not what I want. I just want to know you. We're angry, fearful, and jealous that Christ's fame and effort exceeds our own, but that's the best thing for us because our effort isn't enough and our fame isn't worth anything to God. Christ exerted all the effort for you on the cross so we don't have to exert any of it. So that's the human side, how we're like both David and Saul in various ways. Now we're going to look at the divine side. We're going to switch from looking at ourselves to looking at Christ. And we're going to see first how Christ is a type, or how David is a type of Jesus, meaning how David is like a picture of Jesus, imperfect, but a picture of Jesus that points to Jesus ahead of time. Like David, Jesus had enemies who feared him and tried to destroy him. Saul fears David. We're going to see over the next couple chapters, he's hunting David down, trying to hunt him down and kill him because he's afraid of him. He's afraid that David will take the kingdom. Like David, Jesus also had enemies who feared him and tried to destroy him. From John, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish ruling body uh, in the Roman Empire that made uh, decisions theologically and spiritually for Israel. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, meaning Jesus, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. What do they fear? They fear losing their temple and their nation. They fear losing the positions of power they had, the fame that they had. Throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, as you see Jesus interact with the Pharisees and the chief priests, you see that they're filled with pride, they're filled with fear, that Jesus is taking away what they had, that people are no longer looking to them, but looking to Jesus. And so they're angry about that because they're losing fame, they're losing status, they're losing popularity, but also they're afraid that eventually the Romans are going to step in and take everything away, and they'll have nothing left. 
And so what's the response? They try to take his life. They have the same fear that Saul has about David, and in different ways than Saul, trying to enact the same type of plan. They're plotting to take his life. Like David, Jesus eluded his enemies. These are two really cool stories. This is just one verse from each one, but they're pretty neat. So in the first one, John 7, Jesus basically says to people, actually, I'm eternal. I existed before Abraham. And they get really upset when he says that. And then at this, they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So unlike David, Jesus doesn't have to run away to elude his enemies. He's standing right there, and they're not able to take a hold of him and kill him because his time had not yet come. And then an even more astonishing story in some ways from Luke 4. Uh, Jesus once again has said some stuff. They get really angry about it. So they get up, they drove Jesus out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order, order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That's one of those stories you read, and it's like, man, I would love to see, like, what that looked like. It's almost hard to imagine. Like this crowd has a hold of Jesus. They're dragging him up this mini mountain to the top of this hill to throw him off and kill him. And all of a sudden, they're not dragging him and he's just walking through the crowd and walking away. It's like, what does that even look like? I don't know, but it's pretty cool. So those are ways that David is a type of Jesus, that Jesus is like David. But there's also contrast. There are ways that Jesus is different than David. And the main way... Unlike David, who continued to evade Saul, spoiler alert for the rest of First and Second Samuel, Saul, uh, David doesn't die, Saul doesn't get him. Eventually Saul dies, David becomes king, and goes on from there. But unlike David, Jesus eventually allowed his enemies to capture and kill him. So Jesus was eventually captured and killed. He died on the cross, but he wasn't outwitted by his enemies, he allowed it to happen. In Matthew 26, he says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, which would be more than 70,000 angels? But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be arrested, he says to those coming to arrest him and to his disciples who are trying to fight for him to keep it from happening, he tells his disciples, Stop! This is my plan. This is how it has to happen. Do you think if I need help, I can't call on God and he'll put at my disposal 70,000 angels to take care of this? But that's not how Scripture says it has to happen. So it's going to happen the way that I and the Father and the Holy Spirit decided it would happen in eternity past. And then he is killed. At Golgotha, they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Jesus eventually allowed his enemies to capture and kill him. David achieved victory through avoiding death. Jesus ultimately achieved victory through dying and raising from the dead. Let's look a little bit more at that for our last thing to look at in the divine side. So back to the title of the sermon, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Let's rewrite that phrase and look at it from a little different angle. Satan has slain his thousands and Christ his tens of thousands. And now let's look at what they're slaying because Satan and Christ are slaying very different things. From 1 John, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, another name for Satan. 
because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If you've ever asked yourself, why did Jesus come? Like, why did he decide to come? Why did he decide to be incarnated, meaning to take on humanity, to become human while still remaining God? Why did he decide to come and to die for us and rise from the dead? He did it to destroy the devil's work. To destroy the work the devil had been doing of sin, of leading people to sin and tempting people with sin. In 1 Peter, there's a verse that says, watch out. Your enemy, the devil, is like a hungry lion prowling around waiting for someone to devour. When you read that verse, you might think, oh yeah, devour. So Satan wants to take a hold of me and just tear me to shreds like a lion would if it got a hold of me. Well, yes, but not in the way you're thinking. How does Satan devour people according to 1 John 3? Not by tearing them to shreds physically, but by tempting them, by leading them into sin. Genesis 3, Satan as the serpent tempting an Adam and Eve. That's Satan attempting to devour Adam and Eve, to tear them to shreds. Not by physically ripping them apart, but by leading them into sin away from God. Leading them not just into evil acts, but good acts done apart from Christ. Leading them to places where they can think highly of themselves rather than highly of God. Why did Jesus appear? To destroy that work. Satan has slain his thousands, led thousands into sin, into that slaying, into that devouring. But Christ has slain his tens of thousands, and not just tens of thousands. On the cross, Christ slayed all our sin. Millions, billions. Not technically an incalculable number, but incalculable for us. God knows the number if it matters to him but a much larger number than we could ever fathom or count. All those sins, Christ slayed them. How did he slay them? By dying and raising from the dead. In the opposite way that David slayed his enemies, who slayed his enemies by avoiding death and by killing his enemies, by overcoming them and staying alive, Christ said, watch this, I'm going to do something no one's ever seen before. I'm going to defeat my enemies by dying and then coming back from the dead. Jesus, in doing that, defeated Satan and defeated sin and defeated death. Our enemies have been defeated, and we look forward to the day where they will be destroyed. So with that in mind, rejoice. Rejoice. You've been given both a kingdom and Christ himself. You've been brought into his family. Jesus says, you're no longer enemies your friends, your brothers and sisters. And also rejoice. Christ has slain not just 10,000 of our sins, but all of them. The sins of your past, the sins of your present, maybe even sins you're committing in your heart right now as I'm preaching, and the sins of our future. All of our sins have been slain by Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is the joy and the hope. This is what we rejoice in. And this is available to you, that this kingdom that Christ has, himself is available to you, not anything you have to do to earn it, but just to believe that he did it for you. And in doing so, Christ slays all the evil in your past, all the arrogance and the pride in an instant. 
and not just in the past, but the present and the future. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have slain all our sin, past, present, and future. We praise you that you have come, that you have given us yourself and access to all the benefits of your kingdom. I pray, God, for everyone here who believes that, that as we struggle through sin, the victories and the defeats, we would remember that you've cut off the head and that you have slain it all and that someday it will be ultimately destroyed. And I pray, God, for those who don't yet believe, that they would believe this morning, that they would believe that you came in love to die in their place and slay their sin and save them from death. Amen.